is this kid? We'll send you MPU's data so you can see. Wait a minute. What's MPU? A friend of Edward's. What are you saying? That you know Edward? Mm-hmm. Because Edward is Edward. Howdy, cowboys. How y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Colin Tanner. And I'm Steve Cuff. And every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes info, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. And Steve, here it is. We're finally at the episode where the entire crew is getting together. It's basically following the sitcom arc where, you know, you start off with some adult characters, then you add another one, now we got a dog. Oh, wait, here's another kid to kind of, you know, breathe some life into things. And we'll be talking all about Ed and your early impressions of Ed, which you've shared with me a little bit. They are not incredibly positive. Radical Edward, the cousin Oliver of the anime world. Oh, my God, I forgot to even call her Radical Edward. Anyway, of course, we always start off with Bebop history. And because we're talking about Radical Edward this episode, we're going to be talking about the voice actor, Melissa Fawn, who plays Edward in Cowboy Bebop. In the English dub, I should say. And don't worry, we're going to cover the Japanese voice actors in a future episode. Now, as we've learned in the past, it's best to avoid overly biased sources when it comes to fact-finding. A certain person who was afraid of roller coasters taught us that. However, in the case of Melissa Fawn, she's devastatingly honest about her life. In fact, an early version of her website showed a short bio that had a bunch of her childhood photos. But Fawn grew up on Long Island. No, wait, she grew up in Long Island. Long Island, you don't get to be special anymore. The only girl in her family, but she was not the only performer. Her father and oldest brother were both accomplished jazz musicians, and her two older brothers were actors, writers, and directors. Melissa, on the other hand, just wanted to dance. By age three, she performed in her very first recital. Do they really do that? Do they? Is that still common, having three-year-olds dancing? I think so. My little sister took dance lessons. Oh, how'd that go? I, I don't know. I never went. I mean, do you still go to her dance lessons? No! She's like 22! But why would she stop? She starts so young. What a waste of a lesson. Hey, when you're a no-talent hack like my sister. Whoa, okay. That was mean. Whoa. Love you, Shannon. Well, shortly thereafter, her family moved across country to Huntington Beach, California. I know nothing about Huntington Beach. You ever been? Yeah, it's full of, like, bros and guys with, like, sideways hats and cargo shorts. Hell yeah, awesome. And under the advice of her father, Melissa began singing as well. In her bio, it actually reads, My dad told me to be a triple threat. It's really, really adorable. There's a reason she had to delete it. By the time she graduated high school, college wasn't really in the cards. She dropped out after a year. She was already performing regularly, even appearing on television occasionally until she continued to take on a string of odd jobs. Allegedly, one of those side gigs was as a receptionist. And in a sort of Hollywood fairy tale, a casting director overheard her voice and then cast her in the lead role of the Betty Boop movie mystery. That's right, her first voiceover job was as Betty Boop, and it was because a casting director was just walking around and heard that voice and had to have it. I just picture like a, a big fat guy in a suit chomping a cigar and he's like, that's my Betty Boop right there. Whenever anything goes wrong, he has to throw his hat on the ground and stomp on it. Exactly. Uh, actually, we're going to listen to a little bit of it right now. And you can tell she does a really good job. This could be a big chance, Betty Boop. So don't blow it. Ooh. <laughs> Betty. Oh, Sammy, you're so... Alarming. And report to me right away if you see anything suspicious. I'll be in this costume mingling with the guests. Aye, aye, Mon Capitan. Oh, that's my cue. See you later, Sammy. 
Well, there you have it. That sounds like Betty Boop, but no, that's Melissa Fawn. But the reason we're talking about her, of course, is her time on Cowboy Bebop as Ed. And a lot of her performance was influenced by the director, Mary Elizabeth McGillan, who encouraged Melissa to just go completely nuts, to do whatever she wanted. Obviously, she was already a singer, so she said, go ahead, sing the lines, get really weird with it. They did multiple, multiple takes. In fact, even Melissa said that it was a lot like improv. She would just toss out ideas and she would jump right on top of it. Now, of course, the problem is that in future shows, she likes to do multiple multiple takes, which makes directors kind of go a little crazy. <laughs> She's a bit of a perfectionist, which is why she enjoys acting on the stage, which of course is like a one-act deal. As for her vocal performances, she said it always starts with the voice obviously, but more of a physical manifestation. Once she can hear the character in her head, she begins to adjust her body, being upright or slouched and moving her eyebrows about. It's really intense watching her perform. Now, funny enough, we talked about this two weeks ago, but one of our first voiceover roles was in Super Dimension Fortress Macross 2 colon Lovers Again, which was an original video adaptation not picked up as part of Robotech. And her other roles have been drastically different. She was Hello Kitty on Hello Kitty's Paradise. Let's give that a listen. Going to the store all by ourselves for the very first time? Yeah, but I am a little nervous. Oh, yeah, I can see it. But you still have the shopping list, don't you, Kitty? Oh, of course. It's right here. And you still have the money, right? Yes. In my hand. Then it's shopping time. Let's go. <laughs> she was Rika on Digimon Tamers, Gauz Membrane on Invader Zim, and she was Yumi on Persona 4 and Neptune in the Hyper Dimension Neptunia games. And currently she can be heard as Dende, Michaela, Chrissy, and Monkey on OKKO OK Let's Be Heroes. And you can probably tell Fawn is constantly energetic and inventive in all of her roles. I know that sounds a bit syncophatical, but seriously, watching her do a stage or on screen or do voiceover, She's always trying to come up with a new idea. Now, most famously, outside of Bebop, she was actually part of the original ensemble for Wicked as an understudy for the Good Witch Glinda. Okay, she was the understudy for the understudy for the Good Witch Glinda. And honestly, I'm not sure she ever performed the role, but she was part of the ensemble. But her fans will always best know her for her voice acting. For instance, back in 2003, during the production of Wicked, she was walking down the street of New York City and someone stopped her. And she thought... Oh, wow, they recognized me from Wicked. And she said, you're Ed from Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> that role's going to haunt her for the rest of her life. And that right there is Melissa Fawn. She's a real cool lady. But I suppose, Steve, we should turn to you now that we've uh, talked about how great Melissa is. How do you feel about Melissa as Ed so far in this very, very, very first appearance? Well, Ed is a very obnoxious child. And... <laughs> If that's what she's going for, boy howdy has she pulled it off. Did you turn down your TV when you heard her? No, but like Ed's voice, when I think of like obnoxious anime voice, and I'm sorry, like the Cowboy Bebop fans are frothing right now, but like in my head where I just hear an anime character going, Aah! like that's, I, I get a little Ed there. That's absolutely what Ed is. I feel like Ed is anime being plopped into a mostly normal world, even though it's science fiction and all that. But we'll talk about all about that when we get into the episode. But first, Steve... Can you tell me a little bit about the title of this episode, Jamming with Edward? So what you're listening to right now, um, it's not someone dropping a bunch of instruments on a pile of cats. It's actually an album called Jamming with Edward. Quote unquote album. Album. Like heavy, the heaviest finger quotes 
humanly possible. So yeah, if Shinjiro Watanabe was looking to prove his music snobbery, he basically could not have done better than referencing jamming with Edward. And you knew about this beforehand, right? Yes, yes. So this was actually recorded by the Rolling Stones during uh, the sessions for Let It Bleed, which if you remember when we talked about Honky Tonk Women, we, we discussed this album a little bit, and uh, that song was actually recorded the same time as Jamming with Edward and Let It Bleed. So same session, but basically what happened here was the Rolling Stones collaborated with studio session musicians Nicky Hopkins and Rye Cooter. Now, a, a studio musician or a session musician, you don't really hear a lot about them anymore, but there are some pretty famous ones that worked with like Bob Dylan. You ever heard of the band? They were like his band that recorded with him in the studio. And there's a few other very famous session musicians out there. Rye Cooter is one of them. He also put out a bunch of solo albums. So, you know, your uncle who's like really into classic 70s guitar rock, he probably has a couple of them. If you go to your local record store right now and you start thumbing through the dollar bin, you will find Rye Cooter records, probably at least two or three different ones. Okay, I don't get it. You're talking about session musicians and you're talking about the Rolling Stones and you're talking about jamming with Edward. What is this? Okay, so what happened was they had these session musicians in to record some parts for some songs on Let It Bleed. Which is a good album. Which is a great album. I haven't really listened to The Stones, but I've been paying attention. Okay, so what happened was Keith Richards, who we all know is guitar player for the Rolling Stones slash um, alcohol and cocaine enthusiast, he got into a fight with the producer, allegedly got mad, stormed out, so the band couldn't really record. So they just started jamming, essentially. With Ed? Edward. With Edward. We'll get into the name in a second. But what they did is, I mean, they just improv. It was, um, so it was like Mick Jagger and Bill Wyman, uh, drummer from Rolling Stones, Charlie Watts, uh, Nicky Hopkins, and of course, Ry Cooter. And they were just kind of messing around, literally just dicking around. And someone happened to record it. That's never a good setup for an album. No, but I guess when you're one of the biggest bands in the world, if not the biggest band in the world at this time, it's kind of a big deal. So, you know, like, I guess someone just decided to record it and hold on to it and see what they would do. And uh, much to the chagrin of the Rolling Stones, they decided, and by they I mean the studio, to release it as an album. How do you just do that back in the day? How do you just override what a band wants and say, no, never mind, we're just gonna release this? Totally weird, and it didn't happen until three years later. So they, they just sat on this for years. So Mick Jagger even suggested that stores might like give away the record, hoping that like people might l listen to it longer than it took them to make it. Uh, so. It's called Jamming with Edward, which is kind of a weird name, because Rolling Stones founding member and subpar swimmer Brian Jones used to call to Nicky Hopkins for chord changes, such as, Give me an E for Edward! And the joke kind of just stuck around. Okay, but that's insane already, but... Let's actually get to the meat of this. This is not a good album. No, it's barely an album. It's just it's just a bunch of famous people dicking around, and yet because it's a bunch of famous people dicking around, it peaked at number 36 on the Billboard charts, which is hilarious. Because I, I tried listening to this, and as I've said in the past, I'm not the biggest Rolling Stones fan, but I don't think it would be fair to judge any of them off of this album, because they're not playing to an audience. They're not playing to be on an album. Like you've just said, they're just dicking around. They don't. Even, I don't even think they knew they were being recorded. And also, if you look at the uh, Who Wrote 
wrote what song? I don't think anybody wrote anything. <laughs> no, that's hilarious. Clearly, like, no one was planning anything out. Now, of course, there's that extra layer of music snobbery, which was the collector's market before the internet. When you had all those people out there that were saying, it's actually a really good album, it's hard to find, and then everyone on the internet actually listened to the thing, and holy shit is it bad. I mean, they're listening to it right now. There's literally no song here. There's just chords and scales. It's not a song. Okay, let's actually do it right now. If you were to include this in the Rolling Stones, which you just should not, but if you were, where does this rank on Rolling Stones albums? Somewhere between their embarrassing 80s, like, disco shit in the same realm as the silliness of the music video for Dancing in the Street. I don't know. I might even take, like, their, their 90s and 2000s albums over this, because at least they're, like, albums with some thought. Put into them. So even for a Stones fan, this is the absolute drizzling shits. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Well, so much for jamming with Edward the album. But Steve, when did jamming with Edward the episode air? I'm so glad you asked, Colin. Jamming with Edward aired on TV Tokyo, May 1st, 1998, on my personal favorite TV channel of all time, Wow Wow, December 19th, 1998, and on Adult Swim on September 30th, 2001. Well, that's good to know. That means that they didn't skip this episode like so many others in the post 9-11 era. I think we're finally back on track. I know there's another episode they're going to skip, but we're finally back on the uh, order for Adult Swim. This episode, by the way, was directed by Ikuro Sato, who was the director of Stray Dog Strut and Sympathy for the Devil. Two very, very, very different episodes. And it was written by Dai Sato. This is his first appearance, though he will go on to write two more episodes. Now, we start off this episode with a vacant red metallic sensor of a man-made satellite staring right at us, floating high above Earth's atmosphere. Its robotic voice laments its lonely existence, before controlling a bunch of other satellites and then carving in all these crazy shapes. So, you know, a not-so-subtle nod to 2001 A Space Odyssey. I've heard that. Do you really go for it? Does it sound like 2001? Oh, visually, I think so. And then just kind of like the monotone voice of the uh, the robot satellite, too, for sure. Late 60s movie, Watanabe's a big fan. But the satellite controls all the other satellites, and they use these lasers to draw a bunch of really strange shapes that kind of look like... Uh, uh, native symbols. Yeah, so these are actually geoglyphs. Mm. So all you kids out there, if you're wondering where the Nazca lines came from, they actually came from a space satellite that's sad. No, but for real though, if you're not familiar with what geoglyphs are, they're kind of like crop circles, though they're traditionally done on like grass and stone. The most famous example that I just mentioned, the Nazca Lines, they're in southern Peru, and they were created anywhere between 500 BCE and 500 AD. And these things are crazy. They can be as random as weaving lines or as complex and large as like a 1200 foot pelican. There's a monkey that's really famous. There's a hummingbird that's super famous. And no one's quite sure why they were created. Uh, some people speculate that it was communication with a god. Others thought they were used to, like, aid the flow of water. Uh, but even more remarkable is the creator's complete inability to see the finished results for themselves. So these things are huge. Yeah. So in order to see them, you basically have to take a bird's eye view. So... Uh, yeah, you'd, you'd never be able to tell. You'd have to be a satellite in space to really get the full picture or in an airplane, but Peru isn't known for its mountains, is it? No, I mean, there's there's actually mountainous regions of Peru, but this specific area where you find the Nazca Lines, it's in this really, like, calm, still desert. So there's no precipitation, okay? There's, like, no wind, nothing, okay? Not a lot of life. And it's super cool because the top layer 
of soil is kind of like a, your typical like dark brown sand slash dirt. But underneath that, it's white. So it's a white sand underneath. So what happened is when they made these things, they basically like, I'm guessing they dragged something behind them or in front of them or whatever, but it, it just peeled back that top layer to reveal the white. And that's how we see the Nazca lines now. And because in this particular region of Peru, there's so little going on, these things have survived for years and years and years and years. That is cool. I'm surprised no one's tried to destroy them. Yeah, well, the bad news is climate change could potentially wash these images away soon. But uh, don't worry, some space satellites can bring them back, right, Colin? Yay! Yay, technology. Well, that is fascinating. But I have a little fact of my own right here, because when we go to that title card right there, you hear this noise, this, like, winding noise. Let's just cut to it right now. What is that? Well, if you're ever on a Japanese internet forum, they always say, oh, it's a, a Japanese beetle. That's what that is. Or, oh, it's a Japanese grasshopper. Do not believe them. It is a cicada shrilling to find a mate. Kind of gross. And if you're a fan of anime, you've heard this in a bunch of different series. Now, specifically the ones that we were just listening to right there are the Haya Esa Makulati Osi. Mm, that probably didn't sound right, but they're common in Japan as Min Min Sinkeda, which I think is a far more adorable name. Now, imagine a grasshopper if it was like squat like a ladybug and had big translucent wings, almost like a butterfly. They're strongly associated with summer in Japan because of their long, loud calling sound, which is produced through their hollow abdomen and vibrating membranes as they tense and relax their muscles, which means you can hear them pretty much everywhere in Japan during the summer months. So next time someone tries to tell you that these are Japanese crickets, you let them know that they're Min Min Cicadas. Yeah, cicadas are gross, man. They basically bury themselves underground. They hibernate for literally years. And then it's like, oh, every seven years, the cicadas come out and they leave their gross fucking hollow bodies everywhere and they're disgusting and loud. All right, so back to the show. We get our very first shot of our new character, Ed. Hold on, before we go anywhere, what did you think? You saw Ed for the very first time, this weird redhead, floppy person. Did you recognize right away this is the person from the intro? Yeah, like I, I recognize Ed from the intro, but I guess I, I didn't I didn't fully grasp what Ed was or is for that matter. Uh, but anyways, yeah, Ed's kind of gangly, has this big tuft of red hair and these like rosy cheeks and just looks like angly or angly looks like a gangly preteen anime boy. So what Ed is actually doing is kind of like lounging around and listening to a rock shower report and then he's digitally swimming around the Earth's internet. So it's almost like interacting in VR on the internet. I like that little whale thing in the background, though, that's flying around. Mm -hmm. It's cute. Or sort of like they do in Colin's favorite movie, The Lawnmower Man. Speaking of movies, let's talk about this. We have a hacker in a show in 1998. That's kind of like Hackers the movie, obviously. But what I'm saying is that's kind of progressive of being like, oh, in the future, this could actually mess up everything. Now, of course, hackers have been around since the 60s and the 70s, Captain Crunch, yada, yada, the I love you email. Oh, my God. But the point is, just Google all of that if you don't know what that's about. But how forward thinking is this to have a hacker and a television show as a regular character? Yeah, I, I don't think it would have been seen as super progressive in, say, 2001 when this aired on Adult Swim. But even in the late 90s, like hackers were seen as sort of like just nebulous things. Like, of course, you know, you have the early 90s movie. But, uh, you know, or, or you know, Sandra Bullock in the net. That's another good one, too. You know, while there was media representation of hackers and stuff in the 90s, of course there was. But there was a very specific look and feel to these characters. And they're always just like, I shop at Hot Topic. In fact, we'll get into that later because Faye has her own theories about what a hacker looks like. Back on the Bebop, everybody is just lounging around. 
We got Jet messing with his bonsai tree and he cuts off too much again. Faye's painting her nails. And Spike is actually washing up the uh, swordfish too. While Ayn appears to be watching television. But does he understand it? Well, he probably won't understand this next news report, which is all about the latest Earth drawings. And they go to a special correspondent, Yuri Kellerman. <laughs> oh boy. Now I had to go to a news source to find out more about Yuri Kellerman. And I went to one of the oldest Cowboy Bebop websites ever, The Jazz Mess. One of my personal favorites. And they said this is based off of Yuri Geller, who's one of the world's best-known psychics. If you've ever heard of spoon-bending, he was popular for that. Now, let me just say right here, everything I'm about to talk about is just what I read on the internet. This is just information that was available to me. I am not saying it is true or not. Not the lawyers have calmed down. <laughs> there are a lot of parodies made of Geller based off his appearances on The Tonight Show, documentaries, and all the books that he's written. In fact, there's the Pokemon Kadabra, which is actually named... Yergerer. I don't know. I bet it sounds better in Japanese, but he can be seen holding two spoons. Geller responded to this news by suing Nintendo for $60 million. The case, or at least the agreement, has yet to be reached. Yes, really. All these years later. Open lawsuit. Oh boy. And Geller is very litigious. Most famously with the skeptic James Randi. And uh, I have no opinion of that, so I guess we will just walk away. <laughs> we don't want to be sued. And I gotta say, I love the way that they draw this Gellerman. He's, he's sort of hunched over and paranoid. Of course, we're going to talk about the voice in a second, but just the way that he kind of is confidently creepy. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, yeah. I actually really like the voice that they chose for this. Because uh, you, you think they try and do someone maybe that actually sounded like Yuri Geller, but in fact, they gave them a voice that makes him sound like Peter Laurie. Supernatural. Me, Yuri Kellerman, of course. So, Yuri, what can you tell us about these land carvings? <laughs> what can't I tell you about them, Tom? They're definitely a message, a secret message from beyond. Uh, when and if you don't know who Peter Laurie is, he's a famous, like, old Hollywood actor who's known for being a complete creep. I mean, probably not in real life, but he always played creeps in the movies. <laughs> you know, Rick, watching you just now with the Deutsche Bank, one would think you've been doing this all your life. Well, what makes you think I haven't? Oh, n nothing. <laughs> but when you first came to Casablanca, I thought... You thought what? <laughs> what right do I have to think? <laughs> And he has this kind of like, type of voice, naturally. And uh, you probably saw him in the movie M or Casablanca, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, dozens and dozens and dozens of movies. Did a lot of horror work in the twilight years of his career in like the 1950s, 1960s. So yeah, you can, you've probably seen Peter Lorre a bazillion times. You don't even realize that you have. Also, if you watch old Warner Brothers cartoons, or if you watch The Animaniacs, you've probably seen a good Peter Lorre impersonation. Well, back to the show. Gellerman here explains that there's a grand government conspiracy with aliens to produce the carvings, while the reporter actually mentions that they already know what's happening. It's a satellite that someone possibly hacked into. But Gellerman is still thinking that there's an evil cult involved. It's pretty great. But they do mention, most importantly, that there's an $8 million bounty which means that Jet and Faye are going to go after the hacker, while Spike says he doesn't have any interest. And here's where Faye explains her theory on hackers. Hackers are nerdy, pasty, tubby little geeks with triple-thick glasses. And this one is probably a demented otaku with smelly feet. So catching him will be a breeze. Is that right? And what do you know about hackers anyway? They might have been like that when you were young, but that was a long time ago. What are you trying to say, Jed, that I'm starting to get old like you? Well, you can't tell a woman's age by looking at her. And you can't tell what a woman will do by looking, so you have to be very careful. 
Same with a snake. <laughs> Did you notice that when Jet gets his foot stepped on that he has like weird boots that have like little slots in them, with like breathable whatever, but everything else is like steel? Yeah, it was kind of weird. Mesh and steel doesn't seem like the most comfortable thing for a boot, but I, that's like the only time we've seen his, his feet like that up close, right? I wonder if those have magnetic parts to them just like Spikes did. Also, I love that moment where Jet kind of talks about how he doesn't like being led by a woman, and he also doesn't like leading a woman. I think we're going to have to talk more about that in a future episode. Yeah, it's great here, too, because, well, one, Jet lights a cigarette. We don't have a cigarette counter for him. We are just we approve of him smoking. But he starts talking shit about Earth, and this is kind of a, I don't know, if it's, it's like a little fun theme that kind of runs through this whole episode where Earth is like a total afterthought. People are just like, oh, it's a shithole. Oh, it sucks. <laughs> and it's just, it's just kind of a fun little dig. What were you expecting out of Earth? Were you thinking it would be almost like the Star Trek universe where this is where all the ships were built and take off. Yeah, yeah, I guess a, a lot of sci-fi tends to glorify Earth and make it like a, either a utopia or just like complete like scorched, dead, we destroyed it, that type of thing. It's dystopian. Uh, but this is just like, oh, it's a garbage dump. Who cares? It's useless. <laughs> but things have started to grow again. It's kind of like, it's been long enough where there's still life and there's still people living there, but it, you would not want to visit at all. And I kind of like that they don't treat us this tragic story. They just don't care. No, it's like the universe's trailer park. Yeah, actually. Of course, all of this information is explained on television by a man with a turban who, uh, and darker skin, who talks about the gate exploding, which led to all the rock showers on Earth. But this scene right here, we kind of have to talk about it because we have to talk about the dub right here. You probably noticed that the name of the individual is maybe kind of Indian sounding, and he does have a turban, and the voice actor leads in sounding pretty normal, pretty neutral sounding, I would say, before diving headlong into what we would consider the Indian guy voice, which if you've ever watched The Simpsons, we're having a bit of a controversy with that poo. Doesn't matter what you are, if you're a doctor or if you're a convenience store worker, you're going to have this weird voice. Now, if it sounds like I'm being a little bit too picky and I'm a little bit too much on my high horse here, well, it's because I don't think Sinitro Watanabe, the director of the show, would actually want this to be this way. He's actually a person that's very open and interested in other cultures and other countries. And if you think I'm exaggerating, well, I have a quote right here. Here's what Watanabe has said in the past and why so many people of color appear in Cowboy Bebop. Here's what he said. Lots of times when you watch anime, the characters all have white skin. All the characters in fantasy stories also have white skin, which I never liked. I wanted to have lots of characters in Bebop without the white skin. And if people weren't used to that, well, maybe it would make them think a little bit about it. I mean, we haven't talked about this so far, but if you look at the main cast, I don't think you can actually figure out what ethnicity any of them are. They just seem like mixed race. Yeah, and... It's also worth pointing out, too, that this was done during a period in animation where I don't think a lot of people were thinking about diversity. And I can't speak specifically about anime because it's not my area of expertise, but certainly in Western animation. So it is interesting to me that Cowboy Bebop is such a diverse place. And why wouldn't it be? You have this whole universe of people. Um, it would be crazy to think that they'd all just be like white or vaguely Asian. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you don't really think about until someone points it out. And it's like, holy shit, for 1998, this is really progressive. And I'm not trying to hark too much on the voice actor or the director. What they did was wrong, but I didn't really know about the whole Indian voice until very recently myself. Yeah. It was a different time. And, you know, you can be critical of art and still love it and appreciate it. Obviously, like, I think Colin and I both love The Simpsons. Well, the first, you know, nine seasons or so. 
We can love The Simpsons, but still be critical of the more problematic elements. And also, it's worth pointing out that as the years go on, this is probably going to come up more and more. When people watch Bebop for the very first time, they're going to be like, what the hell? Because there's two characters in this episode that are given that voice by different voice actors at that. Now, if you think we're still exaggerating here that this would not be Watanabe's intentions, well, here's another quote about his follow-up series, Samurai Champoo, which was all about samurais back in the Meiji period, even though many of the characters were not traditionally Japanese in ethnicity. Here's what he said. It's not an anime designed to protect Japan's unique traditions and culture. National borders have always been arbitrarily drawn by people, and in ancient times, there was a lot of exchange of people and culture within the continent. There are many theories about who the original Japanese were, but it's pretty clear we were not all one ethnic group, but a mix of various ones. I don't want to say that, like, Kabi Biop is perfect, because there's going to be episodes in the future where we're going to have to bring up some pretty uncomfortable topics, but I feel like we can at least scratch this one off the list for now. And that's also why I feel that this wasn't his intention, and even if this was his intention to go with some sort of stereotype... Well, it would still be wrong, but I still don't think that was his intention. So back in the episode again, we see Ed, who's kind of like playing with a cardboard helicopter like a kid before the police kick in the door. And then Ed's response is he takes control of the police helicopter with like this little remote that he has and he accidentally crashes it. Based on what I've seen of the show, I mean, I think going into this, I wasn't that familiar with Ed, but now that I know a little bit more about him, this is very indicative of his character, like playful and childlike, but also like super genius, mischievous hacker. Okay. And that's the thing is I was actually re-watching this episode before we recorded today, and I was watching that scene, and I thought, this is just not the Ed that I know. <laughs> You'll find out in the future, but Ed is almost accidentally a jerk a lot in this episode, and you just won't see that in future episodes. But we should probably talk about how we refer to Ed, because sometimes we say her, sometimes we say him, and that's like the big twist at the end of this episode was when Faye says, wait a minute, you're a girl. I have no idea how Faye found that out. That's kind of weird. Yeah, but it is kind of odd because I, I guess I just assumed that Ed was a like preteen boy. When it turns out, Ed's gender is actually a lot more complicated than that. Absolutely. Now, the reason the name Ed even exists in the first place is because Ed was originally a boy. Remember back during the Battle of Fallen Angels, episode five, where we saw that kid that was trying to steal the porn and he fell right on his chin. He had a darker complexion, backwards cap, and I kept telling everyone to remember him Remember him? Remember him? Well, this is why. That was Ed. Yes, that was the original version of Ed. Apparently, he was going to be a guitar virtuoso. That's all we really know about that version. But that all changed when Watanabe told the character designer Kawamoto that he wanted Ed to be based off of the composer Yoko Kano. So he flipped it over to a girl and then tried to adapt Kano's personality, which basically ended up being a cat-like person. Now, in case you don't know, Kano, as good of a composer as she is, she can go from being very energetic to very sleepy. There's a lot of reports of her falling asleep at parties on couches. But we actually have that art book that we brought up a few episodes ago. Steve, take a look at that. This is the original version of Ed. Ed looks ridiculous. Like the the shoes and, and the nose and the face and just everything makes Ed look like a character from like the goofy Disney universe. Have you ever seen Goof Troop or um, a Goofy movie? I'm very familiar with the Goofy expanded universe. Okay, that's good. So in a Goofy movie, Max, Goofy's son, has like a girlfriend and Ed kind of looks like Max's girlfriend in a Goofy movie. Like the cute nose. Yeah, I think I think it's like the cute nose and the hair and also the, the outfit that they have Ed wearing. And it's kind of hard to tell because Ed's like straddling this chair in a really weird way. It looks like Ed is dressed like Chung Lee. Kind of. I thought it was like Raggedy Ann. 
again. Yeah, it does kind of have like a Raggedy Ann doll vibe to it. But they still have the goggles on top of uh, his head. So when they got rid of that old Ed, they brought in the new Ed, who's going to be a computer hacker, but Watanabe kept the name, even though he changed the gender. In fact, during an interview once, he was asked about, is Ed non-binary? And Watanabe said, Ed's gender is meaningless. We don't need it. Well, the actual quote is, its gender is meaningless, which I think is just a bad translation. And maybe not to be too preachy or anything, but I don't think Ed has particularly decided anything about her gender. She's just having fun. Doesn't care. It's a social construct, man. Here's another fun fact. The Japanese voice actress of Ed was 15 years old during the show. She actually auditioned during middle school. All right, so back to the show. We would be remiss if we didn't mention a very important Ayn scene where Ayn is very cute. It's kind of when, like, he encounters Ed's avatar, like, floating through the internet because Ed beams herself up to the Bebop. So I I guess in this scene, like, sort of, Ed discovers that the Bebop is here to capture a hacker. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. And attempts to help by contacting the satellite and reading its records. Uh, And then it's sort of revealed that all of the carvings were made by a self-aware AI and not a hacker. So they came to get Ed because they thought Ed the hacker was making the satellite draw the Nazca lines when in fact the AI is self-aware. Which is kind of crazy. And I think we should talk about this for just a second, because as we've seen the show grow, it's gone from maybe an adventure show to something that's about people, whether it's about when or VT or whoever in the future. This episode is kind of weird because it's not really about Ed. It's mostly about this satellite, which isn't much of a character. But I do want to touch on that for a second. The idea of they're stopping by to capture Ed, but I think they were on Earth coincidentally because they don't know about the bounty until they're all in the room together. But there's that other scene where they show that Ed knows a lot about them, like knowing about the bounties that they've missed in the past and where they've been. And I've seen some people read it like Ed is a fan of Bebop, but I don't think that's the case. I think she just saw that there was a ship that was on vacation and then she immediately dived in and and did her research, just like she's doing with the satellite. And speaking of the satellite, we have one of the most cliche scenes in anime. Yeah, right. Hey, what's your name anyway? I am the central processing unit on the D-135 artificial satellite. Too stuffy. Don't you have a nickname? Then Ed will give you one right now. Mm, um, let's see. I know. What if I call you Empu? Why? It's like CPU, only neater. <laughs> Ed is short for Edward Wong Hao Pepelutivruski the Fourth. Ed made it up, you know. Now, nice Steve, I know this is going to sound weird, but over in anime, this is a constant scene where children are giving nicknames to AIs because they're too dry and boring. I'll take your word for it on that one. Fans, if you don't believe me, go watch Outlaw Star or pretty much any other anime or even Assassination Classroom. There's so many different shows that do this. Assassination Classroom? It's about where the, the, the students have to kill their teacher before the end of the year or else the world ends. Oh. <laughs> it's a comedy. So MPU, the AI that Ed named, explains that the drawings it's making in South America used to exist prior to the gate accident. And this is, was, is this the second or the third time that the gate accident's been referenced in the show? Second, because I think it was episode six, Sympathy for the Devil, where we very first see it. So yeah, and and that's kind of cool because it makes me wonder if there's, you know, if there's going to be broader things involving the gate accident that that are going to continue to be plot points in the series. So kind of interesting world building. But unfortunately, that conversation's cut short when the cops interrupt the signal, but who cares? Because we get to see Spike smoking. And I love this scene right here where Faye turns on her transmitter satellite to be like, all right, show me every transmitter near me. 
And there's more transmitters than there aren't on the radar. And that's active transmitters too. Ah, oh, it's so good. And Jet's going to go around and ask for information about Radical Edward. So we have this really great scene that I, I really strikes me as like a Watanabe scene. We see Jet's feet in motion on a panning shot and then medium shots, profile shots of these really wacky earthlings. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's it's a really interesting use of montage because we've talked before at length about how Cowboy Bebop as a show moves at a pretty quick pace and script economy is important, but they also want to tell a lot of story. And this is a great way to not only tell that story in a really economical fashion, but it's also hilarious. Now we get this first guy right here. He's got a big pot leaf shirt. He's got skulls on his glasses and he has a smiley face pin on his shirt, which I think might be a reference to Watchmen the comic before it blew up as a movie. I just thought he was a dirty ass hippie. Of course he's going to wear a fucking smiley face like it's the 1970s. Oh, I should have rewatched this and see if it was like Edward's smiley face. We get another guy in a turban who has his friends standing around the background. I just, I love when we see the people of the universe. That's the coolest thing is when there's people not actually engaging in the scene, they're just looking onward. We get an old man with a timer magazine referencing time magazine and a walking stick we get a lady with a payphone i guess they're using payphone still yeah payphone of the future she has plants and she has a kitty that she's petting and she says that edit is a drag queen who had one of those operations because <laughs> you know drag queens are famous for their operations and then finally we have a small child who's selling candy and jed is told that ed is a three-year-old seven foot tall basketball playing drag queen guru alien i mean it, this is kind of great because it's uh, i just love the way the mythos of ed is built into this ridiculous figure when nothing can be further from the truth. But it's almost like a game of telephone where these people just hear, oh, did you hear about this person? Building and building and building and none of it's true. I take it a different way, the idea that all of it's true. Like Ed is someone that transforms instantly and becomes different things in a snap second. So of course it's like, I don't know, it was like a three-year-old. They were seven feet tall. Uh, They were a Hindu guru. Of course, Ed is all of those things and so much more. Ed has no limitation, as we'll see in future episodes. But at least Jed gets a box of Piyokos. Yeah, I love this scene. So Piyokos are clearly peeps, which if you're not familiar with peeps, they're disgusting. They're these marshmallow birds that you usually see around Easter. So they're they're made out of marshmallow and then they have this sort of glittery sugar... Uh, substance like granulated sugar that's around them. They're originally made by the Rota Candy Company and they were acquired by Just Born in 1953. Each batch apparently took 27 hours to produce with a series of pastry tubes. Uh, I would say not worth it for 27 seconds. And now it takes a few minutes to make them. But yeah, either way, that's a peep if you're not familiar. Also, they're notorious for getting really stale and gross. So this is great because they, they try and feed the, the little uh, brown bird thing to Ayn and he's just like chomping on it and can't bite in into it. And it's just like, yeah, that, that seems very similar to my own experiences with peeps. And just in case, I did a little bit of research about dogs and chocolate, and you should definitely not feed that to them because it can cause diarrhea, vomiting, and even death in severe cases. But I don't think the Piocos are chocolate. By the way, we have a commercial break, and we talked about the commercial break, I think, two episodes ago, or last episode. This one really stands out because it's just a crumpled up piece of paper with Cowboy Bebop written on it in a bullet hole, and then it moves across the screen in stop motion animation, and it's really creepy. Did this one not stand out to you just a little bit? Yeah, it was just super weird. I don't think it has anything to do with anything other than someone was just like, here's a dumb idea, and they just did it. Also, we uh, cut back to Ed, and we have two of my personal favorite tracks off of the Bebop soundtrack. We have the Egg and I which is a really cool flute, hand drum, and guitar bit. This is when Jed is 
walking around trying to get information. That combination sounds awful for instruments, but it's absolutely fantastic. And then we have Cats on Mars, which is a really bouncy synthesizer song, and you can totally tell it's just Yoko Kano hanging out and messing around on her keyboard just like she did back in her pop music days. Now, Ed's already got all the information about MPU, and she also knows about Bebop that's looking for her, so she does the right thing. She just calls directly into them. How did you like all that text swirling around into a smiley face? Also, like, typical hacker trope, too, where it's just like, Oh, I've used ASCII symbols to make a face, and that represents me. Well, you can kind of see from Ed's physiological state of just sort of moving around and being all noodle body. Of course she would make all the things float in the air. She informs Spike and Faye that they'll have to get close to MQ without using their computers, destroying the transistors, and downloading the program. Jet realizes that this is nearly impossible, but Spike thinks that's awesome. So, of course, like, there's this whole setup where it's just like, oh, well, you can't do this stuff or you'll get attacked by attacky satellites. So you know what's gonna happen. They're gonna screw something up and then attack satellites, right? Uh, so... Of course, that's exactly what transpires, and I don't like this action scene at all. This whole episode feels just kind of like silly and small and weird, and we've talked before about how this show has trouble introducing characters and still having an effective episode, and I feel like this, it, it feels like a really tacked on action scene. You know, you just have all the oh, lasers and, blah, and gotta save the day and blah, 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 and it just doesn't do anything for me. The only thing I like, and this is something that Cowboy Bebop does really well, we've, we've also talked about how well the show uses music, but you can't can't underestimate how well the show uses silence. And there's no music during the scene, which is kind of cool. And it really makes you focus in on it. Uh, for me, I focused in on how much I didn't like it. But I mean, it's not like it, was, it's, it looks bad or anything. I just don't feel like it, it flows with the rest of the episode. I feel like sometimes Bebop just needs a little bit more momentum and maybe a little bit of a, a little bit of a ramp for the jump because it goes from just hanging out summertime. It's all cool. Spike's watching the swordfish. Ed's laying outside. Let's go take a casual stroll. Talk to the people nearby. Lasers are everywhere. Run the lasers. Like, well, this isn't really working for me. I do think the scene itself on its own, if you were to show us to someone, they're like, that's a badass scene right there. Because it's cool watching, you know, Faye avoid the lasers and Spike almost get uh, nailed. But then the asteroid breaks up into pieces that gets hit by the laser. All of that's really good. But like you were just saying, it's that tone. It just doesn't fit the tone. But it doesn't matter. Because Spike just rolls up and then Ed tries to download MQ, which nearly breaks her internet, and the scene is over. That was exciting. So now we're kind of back in the bebop and uh, we're watching television on Earth in 2071, or presumably Earth. I don't know where it's being broadcast from, but it's reported that, oh, the weather satellite was actually a U.S. spy satellite put in place before the gate accident and then completely forgotten, and the AI was meant to turn on once communication with us was interrupted. It's a big info drop at the end. Yeah, it, it kind of is. It's just like, let me explain everything. I, I like that backstory, though. I do think it's kind of cool that it activates when everyone's gone, just like it was supposed to, but instead it gains loneliness instead of a mission. Yeah, no, I, I like the idea of, of the backstory. I just I don't like the execution here where all of this is just kind of dumped on us in literally like a five second clip. But hey, Big Shots is back. Woohoo! So of course the uh, bounty hunting cowboy show. Is it a show or a news segment? I don't know what it is exactly. It's a 45 second show that apparently has enough viewers to be on the air. But they do find out that no, 
You can't give an AI to the police. That's not how it works. Doesn't, doesn't work. Only organic life forms. I love how Punch is given that information with a stick. He just grabs the piece of paper off of there. Why doesn't he have a teleprompter? I don't know, there's a lot of questions about Big Shot that I, I don't understand. I do love the shot of Spike and Jet being so happy together that they finally caught this, this AI and Spike's rubbing his hands together and Jet has this look like, you're damn right we did it. And the cop is just looking at this floppy disk like, I don't even know what this is. We cut back to Ed on Earth. It's the next day and she's dancing around and she's saying bebop here here that's just a good moment but of course <laughs> Faye does not want to keep to her promise which was her giving her all the information about mq and then they could catch the bounty and ed wouldn't take any of the money as long as she got to be a member of bebop but because Faye tries to welch on the deal ed just takes control of the ship and flies it right back to earth and crashes it and i love that shot of ed with a big treasure cat smile so once they're back in space spike informs chet about the uh, three things that he hates Jet, do you know that there are three things that I particularly hate? Kids, animals, and women with attitudes. So tell me, Jet, why do we have all three of them neatly gathered in our ship? Ed loves Miyoko's. And And it's great because this is kind of what we've been saying the entire time. Now Spike just... Flat out says it. <laughs> I love that Jet is just like, he echoes his statement from before. Nothing good ever comes from Earth. But then we see that somehow Ed carved the big smiley face into the continent of Africa. Yeah, he definitely like murdered a lot of people and some animals. <laughs> the cradle of life and humanity has been destroyed by a smiley face. That's actually a really interesting point. I never thought about it. The, the Fertile Crescent. <laughs> and now it's just this big goofy big, dumb sm- smiley face. Because Cowboy Bebop! I will say, though, I like the computer graphics on that rotating shot of Earth. It actually holds up really well. Probably the best computer graphics we've seen so far. Well, everybody's in a bad mood, except for Ed and Ayn, who we do see dancing around in zero gravity, as we do cut to AC, a space cowboy. Now let's get to the important stuff right here. Cigarette counter for Spike! One! Six cigarettes in total. He was smoking a cigarette briefly before Ed called in. Now, Dr. Steve, what is your take on this week's Inometer? As you know... In this episode, Ayn is cute as hell, especially during that peep scene. So I can only say that, uh, you know, in German, I would give him his Zen! A what? Zen! I don't know what that is. It's a, it's a 10. 10 is the number. Okay, Steve, last week you said we should introduce a bounty meter, uh, which I guess is zero for this week because they didn't get the money, even though they got the bounty. But what about last week? We saw them get one on camera, and I think they might have gotten Picaro because she at least had the gun to his head. No, doesn't count. Why not? Doesn't count. (laughs) Picaro doesn't count. Has to be on screen, bounty. We have to confirm. We cannot... Confirm Picaro. Okay, so like the cigarettes. Zero, and I guess that brings the total to one. Yay. Nine episodes in, and they've got one bounty. Now, we definitely have opinions on this episode, which we'll get to in a moment. But Steve, you've been digging in the depths of Funimation now and Internet Movie Database. What do they say about this episode jamming with Edward? That's right, Colin, because there's nothing I love more than arbitrary numerical values applied to art in order to rate and review their value. So, over on Funimation, this episode got three and a half stars, which is lower than average for Cowboy Bebop. That's kind of weird. I mean, it's not one of my favorites, but... No, I, I, I call th- it a lower than average episode. Sure. I just didn't know Funimation would agree with us. And over on IMDb, it got a 6.9 average, which is uh, a little bit lower than usual, I believe, but it's also within the, the, the standard deviation range of bullshit on IMDb. That's true. Well, what say you, Steven? What do you think about Jamming with Edward, episode nine, sorry, session nine of Cowboy Bebop? It's fine. I discussed earlier how I don't think Cowboy Bebop is very good at introducing new characters. It's not 
their strong suit. Um, I guess the, the best example is probably the Ein episode, but even for me, I don't think that's a super, super strong episode, but they're able to use Ein as basically a plot device. Like it's just like a MacGuffin that they're chasing after. Well, they're doing that here too with Ed. So why doesn't it work as well? I think because Ed isn't being chased really. Ed is just sort of there. I think Ed's kind of annoying and I and I hope the character will grow on me a bit. Um, I didn't like the action sequence. It felt kind of shoehorned in. And I also felt like there was a missed opportunity to take Take some more digs at Earth. Were you looking for more of a conversational, comedic, or philosophical third act as opposed to lasers? Yeah, literally anything other than lasers would have been fine. I feel like here there's a better version of jamming with Edward where Ed is actually a part of the team as opposed to just suggesting things. If she can really hack into all these sorts of laser beams and whatnot, why couldn't she hack into something else and maybe crash into the satellite? It would have been a cool scene. Instead, she's just like, I don't know, plug that into a computer, I'll download them. But this episode is good enough. I just wish that they would have kept with the original tone of a laid-back summer feel. They even have the uh, the cicadas. They want you to have that summer vibe. So by the time the laser beams show up, it's just like, well, what is this for? Even though the scene itself is directed very well, it doesn't fit within the tone and the pacing of this episode. But that's going to have to do it for this episode. Steve, why don't you tell the people about OptimismVaccine.com? If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to iTunes. There's a link in the description of this episode you're listening to. A written review and a five-star rating will go a long way to help our visibility. If you dig the show or you just want us to keep doing stuff, help us out. Other than that, if you want to reach out to us and tell us your thoughts on this episode or anything having to do with Cowboy Bebop, really, you can find me on Twitter at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. Kyle, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Crychop. That's at Dr. Crychop. Or you can find my video game stuff at videogamesardumb.com or youtube.com slash videogamesardumb. Fantastic. And make sure too, if you're interested in more content from Optimism Vaccine, go to optimismvaccine.com. We've got more podcasts. There's articles. There's even some stuff on anime if you dig around a little bit. So something for everyone. If you like weird pop culture and just bizarro left-to-center stuff. Fantastic. Well, for Steve Cuff, I'm Colin Tanner. See ya, Space Cowboy. A podcast casting to iPods that no longer exist. An anime consumed by bad fan art. One trapped in codec. Another in painted cells. On one path for iTunes reviews. Next episode, Ganymede Elegy. That's five stars, please.